designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here. So let's get into it. Welcome back. So you are in for a treat this week. I have a fantastic conversation teed up with the very energetic and fun Pervy Gandhi Irwin. Pervy and I met years ago when she used to work at Quinn Evans Architects, which is where I work now. And we talk about a whole number of things from Pervy being a brown person in Utah, traveling the world, working in Italy, going to school in New York, participating in exchange programs as well as then moving to the D.C. area, getting married, having babies, joining architecture review boards, changing jobs, and learning along the way. One of the things that I love about talking to Pervy is that we can nerd out both on diversity and also the documentation of a historic building. Then also talking about how Revit and building information modeling, also known as BIM, really plays into preservation, as well as diversity within the architecture, engineering, and construction industry, also known as the AEC industry. We talk about one of our favorite conferences from 2020, which was the Dismantle Preservation Conference, as well as the ways to interpret and document historic sites. So this week, in lieu of a quote, I figured I would actually post some images on Instagram of Ramsey Homes, which is one of the projects that Pervy talks about. And it's a very full circle moment for me because back when I was working at the company I co-founded, we actually were hired to do the Historic American Building Survey or HABs drawings for the Ramsey Homes before these buildings got torn down. And so I'll put links in the show notes to those drawings, which are now in the Library of Congress. And so it's great just to hear more about Pervy's journey, particularly since Pervy did a fantastic symposium on the buildings and documenting them before they came down. So if you haven't already, head on over to the Tangible Remnants Instagram page to see some of those photos of Ramsey Homes before they got demolished. 
So let me read a little bit of Purvi's bio for you. So as the practice manager for architecture at CAD Microsystems, Purvi supports professionals across all disciplines with BIM technologies, which includes teaching Revit, developing workflows and standards, troubleshooting issues, and finding creative solutions to both design and modeling problems. She has 17 plus years of experience, most spent as a preservation project architect, where she specialized in using innovative technologies to facilitate the documentation and rehabilitation of institutional buildings. And she also has 12 years of Revit experience working with historic buildings, from conceptual design through construction administration and project closeout. Pervy is a registered architect with degrees in both architecture and historic preservation. She served on the Alexandria, Virginia Parker Gray Board of Architecture Review from 2012 until its consolidation in 2019 as both a board member and as a board chair. She currently serves on the Alexandria Board of Architectural Review. In the past, Purby was also active with both the local and national chapters of the Association for Preservation Technology, APT. She has recently become more involved in equity and diversity conversations as they relate to both the larger AEC industry and more specifically around historic preservation principles. She loves to learn and teach with the strong belief that diversity in all ways creates stronger and more resilient communities. She has presented at many conferences over the years, including Biltna Conferences, Autodesk University, Design DC, AIA National Conference, ArcX Conference, the APT Annual Conference, and local AIA chapter events. You can find her on Twitter at BIMCHIC, which is B-I-M-C-H-I-Q, and also on LinkedIn. And I have all these links to all this great information in the show notes. In addition, a couple other announcements before we get into the show. So I've gotten a number of different requests about people wanting to either donate to the show or sponsor the show. I would love all of that because right now this is just a labor of love that I do in my spare time. There is now a donation page and a sponsorship page that you can get to through Instagram or the website. So if you want to donate some money, help pay for some editing, help pay for some hosting, I would love for you to do that. Be sure to check the show notes as well to other links to the surveys that Pervy talked about, as well as to a link to Pervy's Twitter account. And so now let's get into the show. Well, Pervy, thank you for joining the podcast. I'm excited to have you on. I'm excited um, to be here. Yeah. And so I would love to start with your preservation journey because I know where you started and where you are are quite different. That's very true. So I, uh, it kind of starts actually from uh, very young age. So when I was really young, I was very much into the environment and recycling and things like that. I come from a uh, an immigrant family. So I'm first generation Indian. And in Indian culture, there's a lot of like recycling and reusing. It's just what people do. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I've seen other Indian people from like other parts of the country like talk about the same thing like there was this really funny video that was like Kamala Harris making like dosa with like Mindy Mm. Kaling and they were talking about how their moms like saved all these coffee containers and I was like everybody does that it's like an Indian thing it was really funny (laughs) so I mean so sort of like reusing recycling like thinking about and it's not so much like I think an environmental thing in India it's just like 
being frugal and being mm-hmm. thrifty with what you have. So I was all just interested in that. And then, so when I was younger, I wanted to kind of be an environmental engineer, but then I got really more into art and I kind of realized that architecture was like a good mixture between art and engineering. Mm-hmm. So I went towards the architecture side. But So in high school, I went to a school that had the international baccalaureate program, the mm-hmm. IB program. And so as part of that program is you have to write what's called an extended essay, which is like a mini, mini thesis, right, on gotcha. some topic that you're interested in. So because I was interested in architecture, I actually did an architectural comparison of an old building, and I put it in quotes because it's Salt Lake City where I grew up, so old is a relative term, <laughs> and then a new building. So I did the Salt Lake City Hall, which was built in like the mid 1800s, and then compared to like the brand new um, courthouse, which had just been built mm-hmm. in, so this was like the late 90s. So, you know, now it's it's an old building, an older <laughs> building, but back then it was brand new. And so I was comparing like the styles between the historic sandstone city hall and then this new modern glass and steel and stone building. So Mm -hmm. that was kind of where my, that was a little bit of the old and the new came into it. And then when I got to college, I went to architecture school in New York and, you know, there's lots of older buildings in New York and I got interested in that. And I interned for a local uh, preservation group there, which was really cool because I got to do some survey work in like the West Village and like the Meatpacking District. That was really fun. I did some, some fun work with that internship and I ended up going and spending a summer in Rome in Italy Mm-hmm. Because I had a professor who was Italian, and I pretty much was like, can you find me a job in Italy? I don't care where it is. I just want to go to Italy. That's and awesome. so his, he had a practice that was in Venice, but he didn't have any, didn't know anyone there. But he found, through a friend, someone who needed a summer intern in Rome. That's awesome. So I literally got in an airplane and went to Rome <laughs> and didn't know a single person in the whole country. Didn't speak Italian. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> gonna go to Rome when I'm 21 years old because why not it'll be fun right so so I went to Rome and I met my my boss and she's really cool she had a tiny little practice that was like three people and she did a lot of uh, conditions assessment on like Roman ruins which was super cool and so I worked with her for half a day and then she didn't have enough work for me so she found me a job working for someone else uh putting hand drawings like into CAD. Mm-hmm. So translating like Italian hand drawings into like Italian AutoCAD, which <laughs> was kind of funny too. So I didn't care. I made terrible money. And this was back when it was Lira and it was like terrible money. Oh dang. But I got to be in Rome. Yeah. For, like two months. And I lived with a bunch of uh, like exchange students. There's this exchange program in Europe called Erasmus, which is like an international exchange between all different European countries. Huh. So I lived in an apartment with four other girls. There was like two girls from uh, Greece, a girl from Poland, a girl from Austria. And so I just got to live in this apartment that was super fun with a bunch of other college girls. And we had fun and partied in Rome, you know, and then. <laughs> I went to work. I had worked the summer before Mm -hmm. uh, at an architecture firm and saved up money. So I used that money to live off of, essentially. So I I spent all of that money living in Rome, plus the little bit that I made. I mean, I think it ended up being like $6 an hour when you (laughs) took the lira. Like, I mean, it was like crazy. Yeah. But it was super fun. I got to, you know, 
be in be in Italy and yeah. go to lots of fun places. And so the next year in studio, we actually did like this comparison, like Rome, Berlin, New York project. Mm-hmm. And so we compared the three cities and we did a lot of analysis on the cities. And then we had to pick a site in one of the cities. So I actually picked this site in Rome that I went by like literally every single day. It was, it was these three tiny little temples that were in a traffic median, but they were sunken down because Rome just keeps building up. Right. Okay. And, and I used that as my site and I did this like kind of sky museum hmm. project, like over the site. Mm-hmm. So I used that as my, as my project site. So I had been there and spent a lot of time looking at it. Right. And so that's kind of like how I got, <laughs> I got there. And so then I graduated from architecture school and I went to a very theoretical school. And so mm-hmm. it was in 2003 and the market was not very good. So I decided to just go to grad school and get another degree. So then I went to grad school <laughs> and <laughs> got my preservation degree. At that point, by the time I was done with grad school, I was engaged to my now husband and he lived down here in the DC area. He was in Fredericksburg. Mm -hmm. And so I found a job in DC and Mm -hmm. we ended up moving like into Alexandria a couple months after we got married Mm -hmm. because that was much more convenient than trying to deal with the DRE from (laughs) Fredericksburg. I did it for two months, had a really bad experience getting home one day and I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm done. Let's move. (laughs) (laughs) So, So we moved in closer and lived in an apartment for two years and then we bought a, a house so I live in like a 1943 brick box row house nice. in Alexandria and it's been really cool like I've worked on a lot of really great projects in DC I mean being in this area is great I've been inside of the back of house spaces of so many fun mm-hmm. like Smithsonian buildings and other institutional buildings and things like that and then in 2000. 10 or 11, I found out about the Board of Architecture Review that mm-hmm. Alexandria has. And so there were t- there were two different boards because we have two historic districts. So I applied to be on the smaller one, which is Parker Gray. And it took me a couple times of applying to get on the board. But I've been on the I got on the board in 2012. And I was on that board till 2019 when city council combined the boards into one. Gotcha. So now I sit on the Alexandria Board of Architecture Review. <laughs> so it's just <laughs> one. And it's interesting because I think Alexandria was the only city where there was a different board for each district. Because yeah. in most places, like in DC, the Historic yeah. Preservation Review Board, right? They yeah. oversee like, I don't right. even know how many districts there are in DC, right? right? Like all of DC. And <laughs> exactly. And I had and I had spoken in front of them for some of the projects that I had worked on. So mm-hmm. I knew what it was like. Uh, and I thought it would be a good way to give back to the community and be involved in the city. So I've been doing that for like nine years now, which yeah. is a long time, but yeah. I really enjoy it. And it's brought, it's gotten me to like really learn my city. I mean, I've lived in Alexandria now for like almost 15 and a half years. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I know the people, I know the city. I, yeah. Um, and like, there's been a bunch of change in Alexandria since then. So it's kind of exciting to yeah. be on the review board and, involved in that so that sounds awesome yeah and the big projects that come through those are really mm-hmm. fun to be on although i'm glad i wasn't on the old and historic board when they were doing all the waterfront stuff because they yeah. had many many meetings that went into like the wee wee hours of the night <laughs> and so we just get a few i mean we have a big one right now mm-hmm. that had a couple of long meetings but but yes yeah, that's how i that's how i got here
Yeah. And so like from Salt Lake to New York to Rome, to like I'm loving the, the city hopping like around yeah. the world. I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, I just think that in the mid 70s, my parents, I mean, my dad came to the U.S. in the 60s for grad school and he moved from Mumbai to um, he went to the University of Iowa for grad school and oh, like correct. in mid 60s. Right. And then my mom and dad got married in the mid 70s, mm-hmm. early mid 70s. And then they moved here. And there was no one else here. Like they were the first people from their family. I'm the first person in my family to be born in the United States. Wow. Right. And they were the first ones to come here. And then a lot of other families come since. Right. But um, all of, none of my cousins were born in the U.S. I'm the only one. Gotcha. <laughs> my sister and I are the only, the like the only people in our generation to be born um, outside of India. So I can only imagine uh, the stories that they have of all of the things of being brown in the Midwest, being brown in the DC area, being brown in Utah, where you walk in and like you you literally look in the phone book and you call the first Patel that you see. Not joking, it's totally true. That's what happened. And when I was growing up, we knew every other Indian person in the state of Utah. There are a lot more now, but but I mean, it was good. It was interesting. My parents did well. I mean, it was nice. They still live there. But I, you know, I wanted to do something different. I just felt like I was a city person. Yeah. And you know, living in New York City, you know, it was really a dream of mine. And I got to do it. And I got to be part of the preservation movement, like stuff going on there and architecture and, you know, having New York City as your campus is pretty awesome. Yeah, that, yeah that's pretty legit. Uh, that's, <laughs> yeah. Where, you're, where you're, your drawing teacher tells you, you got to go to the Met and like draw. <laughs> Okay, right. cool. All right, I guess. I'm going to go to the Met and draw. Right. <laughs> Hard day. So, man. Yeah. So it's, it was pretty magical experience when I think about it yeah. you know, in retrospect. Like, yeah, that's awesome. Being in all of that. And so then um, I know now you're doing some work with CAD Microsystems. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit. Just talk about that tradition. I'm not even going to. Sure. So about five years, five and a half years ago, I transitioned from working in an architecture firm. Now I did get my architecture license. That was part of my journey is that I really wanted to do that because I know that it, you know, opens other doors and things like that. So I did get my license, but about five and a half years ago, I had twins and I already have an older daughter. Mm -hmm. And I realized that architecture practice with the way that it's very deadline driven and sometimes like the hours are very random. I just Mm -hmm. couldn't deal with it. I said, I have to keep three humans alive. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's important. I can't, I can't let that not be stressful. Like there's no way that that's not going to be stressful. So I have to make my job not be stressful. Now, right. you know, I, I know that I am not a stay at home mom. That's just not the kind of person that I am. So I knew that I would go back eventually. Mm-hmm. It was just, what did I want to go back to? And while I was out on maternity leave, I happened to see this job and it actually was pretty perfect because I was moving towards sort of BIM management and the technology side. And I wanted to stay in the technology because mm-hmm. I never really wanted to be a project manager. Like I looked out there and I looked at people that I knew were project managers. And honestly, I didn't want any of their jobs. Yeah, I, I, This is not what wasn't what interested me. Mm-hmm. And so I moved towards that. And, and my last few years at my firm, Mm-hmm. Um, I had been involved in using technology for historic preservation. So I was like the first person to do all digital survey on an iPad because yep. I spent a month on a boom lift surveying the Sherman building in DC after that weird random earthquake that we had. Mm-hmm. It got damaged because it's a lo- just a 
bearing masonry wall building. So it, <laughs> lots of things fell off and shifted. And so I spent a month of July, which is mm-hmm. a good time to be on a boom lift. Yeah. <laughs> so hot. Um, oh my God. It was like 90 degrees. Me and one, literally it was me and one other person. And the reason it was the two of us is because we were the only ones who were like, yeah, sure. We'll go spend time on boom lifts. <laughs> Nobody else wanted to be on the boom lifts. And I was like, I want to learn how to drive a boom lift. That's awesome. Right. So yeah. So I learned how to b- drive a boom lift. And after about a week and a half, it was where can I get this basket to go? Because mm-hmm. because it was like one of those cool ones that has like five different ways it can turn. Oh, cool! And so I helped sort of. So we're like, well, we can't have these big sheets of paper on a boom lift. Right. So we got iPads. I like researched all the different apps that were out there, and this was also 2012, so there weren't as mm-hmm. many apps because iPads have only existed since 2010. If you can even think like fathom oh, that, right? Right. They've only existed since 2010. Wow. Yeah. So this was like a first generation iPad. I found all these apps. I tested them all out. We found, of course, there are better ones now, but back then we kind of found the best ones there were. We started out by putting drawings on them and then trying to draw on top of the drawings. And we discovered that that was too hard because you have a gigantic stone wall and you don't know where you are when it's a drawing. So then what I would do instead is take high res pictures with my DSLR and -hmm. then go home at night transfer them into PDFs onto the iPad and then survey on top of the photos. So that was a much easier way of doing it. And we did all the survey and then I came back and I was the project manager on that project. So I kind of figured out the best way to then figure out how we were going to put in the condition assessment because the, it was mostly just an exterior Mm -hmm. repair project. We weren't doing anything new. It was really just repairing. It was repointing, replacing broken stones things like that. So we figured out how to best document that. And it was like this weird hybrid Revit CAD thing that we figured out because the whole building had been laser scanned and the laser scanning company actually created CAD elevations for us, which were correct and not correct because some places they just made stuff up right um, and was it we laser scanned as we went along <laughs> right was it laser scanned before the earthquake or after or after both? after okay yeah so we actually used the laser scans to see how the walls had shifted too because we were able to put the laser scan into revit the point cloud into revit and see the angle and the the there was like there's a clock tower on the building and it actually had to be completely taken down and a new steel system was put in and then a lot of the stones from the top had just fallen down and smashed Mm. and so those were all remade and put on there i actually have a little medallion that the contractor made because it was it ended up being like a design build sort Mm -hmm. of thing because of the urgency of getting it done they actually hired the contractor and then the contractor hired us to do survey (laughs) so we so the contractor gave us all these little like medallions that were oh, pieces of the stone that they had taken off that were damaged with like a little bronze plaque on it. So I Aww. have a little a little <laughs> stone and bronze medallion of Sherman building. <laughs> which is cool. That's so cute. Um, but yeah, so I did that and then I gave a presentation at APT on technology and preservation with some of my coworkers. Mm-hmm. Uh because uh, my old firm, which is Quinn Evans Architects, they do a lot, which is where you work now. Yep. <laughs> um, they do a lot with, you know, laser scanning. And, and even back then, there was, mm-hmm. you know, more more cutting edge technology going on at right. Quinn Evans than at a lot of other preservation firms, like flying drones and um, using Revit to its fullest. So so that, yeah. that kind of got me into the technology side a lot. 
Yeah, I feel like I remember yeah. that presentation and I remember being awed by it. Be like, what? You can use BIM for all of this amazing stuff. <laughs> like it was. Yeah, yeah. That was really fun. That was the 2014. Yep. Um, um, yeah, because I left Quinn Evans in 15. Gotcha. So then, okay, so back to had the babies, they're beautiful. And you're like, but listen, I need more flexibility. And so then you found CAD Microsystems? Yeah. So actually, CAD Microsystems is the company that supported my old firm. And they did like help desk and training and stuff like that. And I remember one time calling the help desk and just being like, this is a job that someone can have where like someone <laughs> just calls you and fi- like you fix their problems. I'm like, this sounds fun. And I had, I, and this was like a few years before, but right. I had asked the person on the other end, I was like, how do you, like, how did you get this job? And she's like, oh, I was an architect. And then I decided to go to technology and now I hmm. do this. But I'm like, that sounds cool. Right. And, um, and so I literally just found the job on LinkedIn, just doing a random search uh, and they were looking for someone with about my amount of experience to, you know, kind of work on the architecture practice side of supporting architecture firms. So nice. So now I do, and and they had never had anyone who specialized in existing buildings and historic preservation before. So I kind of brought that into the practice. So mm-hmm. you know, since being at CAD, I've assisted some firms with you know existing building work, with figuring out how to model things properly, but mostly I help small firms transition from 2D to 3D. Gotcha. So architecture, mainly interior design, because it seems like most of the firms that hadn't gotten onto the Revit bandwagon yet were like smaller, like less mm-hmm. than 15 person interior firms seem to be kind of the the folks who are now just doing it. Although in the past few months, we've started doing these Revit refreshes where people made templates, but they haven't really done anything to them in a while. So they have us look at them and, nice. and you know, add in like, the latest workflows and things and then help them with projects and setup and all that stuff. Because as I tell all of my clients, my job is to know more than you. So, <laughs> cause I get to constantly learn. Like that's the other thing I like about my job is that mm-hmm. I love learning and I love teaching and I get to do both. That's awesome. So yeah, it's a, it's a win-win for me and I enjoy it and I get to, you know, present things and be out there and right. answer people's questions and, I'll, I'll be helping a client. And, you know, when I used to go on site, I have uh, one, one client that I used to just go there one day a week and I'd be sitting at the desk next to the bid manager and people would just come and ask me questions and they'd be like, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm like, you forget, this is my job. Like my (laughs) job, like I'm here for you to bother. Like you're not bothering me. Right. (laughs) Like I do this this. job. (laughs) Yeah. You're paying me to solve your problems. Right. That's awesome. And I like solving your problems. Right. Like, it brings me great joy to, right. to fix your problems, to yeah. make your life easier. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I tell designers, I say, my job is to take care of the boring, tedious stuff so you can focus on the fun stuff, which is the design. Thank so. you for that. That's so amazing. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're enjoying it because it's such a need. It's such I a need. I seriously do. I get so excited. Like today I was helping a client and they were like, I have this thing and I can't figure out where it is and where is this thing? And I'm like, well, let's try this and let's try that. And I'm like, oh, wait, try this. And it worked. <laughs> and I was like so excited. And I was like, yes. And then in the in the process, I actually learned something about right. the process because I was like, I didn't know that this could happen. Hmm. Yeah. And now I do. And right. I actually have a, a Twitter account that I tweet out like these random yeah. things that I learn in my day-to-day job. <laughs> no one else does this. I don't know why someone else didn't come up with this concept before me. But I literally, so literally I was like, I'm going to go tweet that now. <laughs> yeah, I love it. What's the handle? I'll totally put it in the show notes. Oh, it's um, Bimchik, B-I-M-C-H-I-Q. 
And so speaking of learning and teaching, I know that you've also been doing um, a lot of diversity work in the AEC industry, which I love, particularly because it's in the technology side. So I'm, I can, yeah. I'm imagining the demographics of the people that you're working with and the fact that you're bringing the diversity conversation and holding space to have these conversations. I'm really excited yeah. that you're doing that. Talk a little bit more about how you got started doing that. Yeah. So it, it's been, it kind of came in slowly. So I would say in 2019, at the DBEI, which is the Digital Built Something Institute, it used to be, it's built B-I-L-T. It's like a kind of Revit technology conference. Mm-hmm. They had it, the last in-person one was in um, Seattle. And the year before that, they had it in St. Louis. So in the St. Mm-hmm. Louis one, I was invited to be on a panel of women in BIM. Okay. Um, by a few uh, a few other women, and so I was on that panel, and that kind of was where I started getting into it from just more of the kind of gender diversity side of it versus mm-hmm. the all diversity side. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and then at Autodesk University in 2019, I was on another Women in BIM panel, uh, which uh, was also very amazing. It was it was a little bit different, um, but it was with some other really great women in our industry. Mm-hmm. I got into that. And then from there, I actually started thinking about it in a wider context. And I led a roundtable discussion at the 2020 Autodesk University on the diversity problem in the AEC industry. And so that was a lot wider. And you're saying wider as in like with, not wider as in like white, right? <laughs> yeah, wide, not white. Yes. <laughs> yes. Broader, I guess I should say is a better word. <laughs> in scope, right? Like gotcha. a broader scope, not just, it wasn't just like gender, like women, you know, right. in this industry, but it was more about all of the diversity, mm-hmm. you know, depending your ethnicity, your socioeconomic, your um, neurodiversity, your gender diversity, because gender is diverse, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just two, there's not, it's not binary. Right. Uh, and so it was talking about kind of all of that diversity and the issues that we had. And I, uh, before I did it, I actually put out a survey mm-hmm. to gather some information about the kind of topics that people want to talk about and kind of issues that they had. Uh, and I, I mainly, it, it's not a scientific survey. I mean, I published it on my LinkedIn and my Twitter and I sent it out on my Facebook. My Facebook's more personal, but I, I have friends, you know, who are yeah. in the industry who, who are on there. So I kind of just threw it out there to anybody who would take the link. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got a good number of responses. I think I got like 150 responses oh, in nice. like three or four weeks. So it was really good to help me focus what the conversation should really be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and that's what I used it for was to help me formulate the questions to kind of, and I put all that information up on a website. So mm-hmm. I have um, a website that I can give you yeah. if you want to link to it. Um, it's just, it's like a Google site, but it's, I put that information up there and then I've started using that website as a repository for resources. Mm-hmm. So at the and before that conference, I had actually attended two other conferences. One was the Dismantle Preservation one, which mm-hmm. totally like blew my mind. I have Agreed. to tell you, it like, was amazing. It was so amazing. <laughs> yes. Like, like, like I went to that conference. I found out about it. I think the week before it happened, mm-hmm. I talked to my boss. I was like, I really want to go. He's like, Yeah, sure. You know, it sounds yeah. good. We're not too busy. Like, 
it was it was two months after the pandemic like there was right we had slowed down a bit so I spent a couple days doing this and after I was just blown away I was like how have I never thought about any of this like I'm a brown person and I've never (laughs) I just never it's like what you kind of talked about in your opening podcast Mm -hmm. you know I mean it's the exact same thing like I I I was listening to that and I was like yeah we have like the state like a lot of the similar like origin story (laughs) you know and and I had never really thought about it that way. And I just started thinking about these things. And then I went to the national chess conference, like the past forward. Mm -hmm. And that was really interesting too. I think just thinking about preservation in a different way. And I brought all of that stuff back to my board. And I was like, we have to start thinking about this differently. Mm -hmm. And I put together a presentation that wasn't anything that really I came up with, but that was from things I had heard from those two conferences. And I gave a presentation to my local board in it was actually the same day as my AU panel. So I had like lots of diversity that day uh, at our, it was our you know bi-monthly meeting. Right. And I gave a presentation on diversity and historic preservation. And it, it was really talking about, these are the preservation laws that govern national and then state and then local. And I really mm-hmm. focused it on Alexandria because I was giving it to our board and talking about, here are all these themes that I learned about. Mm-hmm. Where do they exist in this legal space that we're currently in? Or where don't they exist? Right. right. And I looked at it from that standpoint in that Alexandria City is very diverse. Mm-hmm. All of our, our school district publishes everything in four languages, English, Spanish, Arabic, and Amharic. Wow. So, yeah. And we have, I think on the statistics, there's like 150 different languages spoken Mm -hmm. in the Alexandria City Public Schools. They have all this information on their website. So I live in a very diverse city and, you know, we need to rethink preservation. And it was Right. right when this big project was coming through in uh, the southern part of Old Town, it's called the Heritage, and it was this like six six or seven block public mm-hmm. housing development that was put in in the 70s, mm-hmm. and it was part of like urban development, and it kind of wiped out this historically black neighborhood at the time and put in just these garden apartment type. These are Ramsey homes, right? No, this is uh, Heritage. Heritage. So okay. Heritage. So when you're coming up Route One, mm-hmm. right before you get to, like right after you um, pass like the sign that says like slow down, then they're right. right on the right side before you get to Duke Street. It's like right there on the right side. You don't notice them because they're set far back and they're only like three stories tall. Gotcha. Um, but they pretty much just wiped out a historic black neighborhood. And so mm-hmm. so we were partially planning these, but then in the conversations with the developer, we said, you know, we need to find a way to interpret the history of the site in your new building. And we as a board think mm-hmm. that actually getting rid of these buildings and putting in something new where we can now add in this history is actually a better use of this land mm-hmm. because you can also put in a lot more affordable units. Like that was the idea is that they're putting right. in, you know, I mean, there's, they're, I think they're tripling the number of affordable housing units in just, and only two, uh, only three of the the blocks are in the historic district of mm-hmm. the whole development. The other ones are outside of it. So we don't get to review those. We only get gotcha. to review the three that are in the district lines because the boundaries are a little bit arbitrary. Yeah. But it was, so that kind of brought that up and, and the developer seemed very open to it. Mm-hmm. He's a longtime Alexandrian. I mean, he is, he's black, you know, mm-hmm. he's a person of color and he understands the history of that site. And so I'm hoping that we haven't seen it in a while. Mm-hmm. It was very contentious. There were a lot of hearings at the last hearing, there were like 40 public speakers. And then wow. 
we approved the demolition and then a group of citizens got together and appealed it to city council. So then I had to, I spoke in front of city council about it, about the demolition oh part right. because I was the one who made the motion because whoever makes the motion gets to speak. Gotcha. Um, and just talking about why we made that motion and why we were hoping that like the new thing would be better for our city and it would help us to better interpret mm-hmm. the history of our city. So that, you know, we're trying to bring it into there and we're trying to think about inclusion to where we're, uh, the board is actually looking at the design guidelines again now because they haven't been looked at in a while. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at some of our other policies to make it more inclusive, like our signage and our notice policies, which, you know, you don't really think about that. But people complained at this heritage project that they didn't know that it was happening. And it's because our signs are these little 11 by 17 pieces of paper. Now on a 12 foot wide row house, if you stick it on the front door, you're going to see it. Right. Right. But on something that's three blocks big, Mm -hmm. you're not going to see this little red and white sign. And so we're thinking about that too, and how to make that more accessible and more out there for people to participate. And I think the, actually the pandemic has made it easier for people to participate because we're doing all of our meetings via Zoom. Mm -hmm. And so anybody can log in and anybody can, you know, speak on any project. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm glad that that is kind of increasing the equity, but I know that still also presents different challenges. Yeah, Uh, yeah. both ways. And I hope that when we go back to in-person, we keep the Zoom, but also have the in-person because I think that really adds to the equity of of the conversation. Yeah, particularly when you don't have to worry uh, for homeowners and for residents when they don't have to worry about arranging childcare and dinner and all of the other things that life necessitates. So if there's actually a little, it's easier to get to and transportation and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I know we changed, we was a little bit tangential, but I mean, it's kind of thinking about how the diversity conversation is coming into historic preservation. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it's something that you're focusing on and it's something that you're being really thoughtful about as opposed to just kind of a, we stand in solidarity and the kind of a lot of the, the fluff that's out there. I'm glad oh, that like you're actually invested. <laughs> in, oh, I definitely in am. Yeah. I hate doing things that are meaningless. Mm-hmm. Like honestly, it, I have so many things to do in my life that mm-hmm. I am not going to waste time doing something that I don't see any value in. I'm not that kind of person. I get really annoyed by inefficiencies literally <laughs> because my job is to make people more efficient. I'm the kind of person where I pretty much know if I can't do something by the time I'm asking somebody else and I'm just right. really verifying it. Like even yep. back in my old job, whenever I would call CAD Micro's help desk, I already pretty much knew that I couldn't do the thing. I just wanted someone who was smarter than me to tell me, yes, you really can't yeah. do that thing. So. Such the same. And I, like I'll do the same. Like I'll look for something, and if I can't find it, then I'll ask someone. I'm like, I just want to make sure I'm not duplicating efforts because I can't find it. It's not anywhere there. But maybe you, someone else, knows where it is. Okay, you don't. Cool. All right. So now I'm gonna go fix it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Doesn't hurt. And sometimes you find the answer. I mean, right. I I like to say at CAD we call ourselves like the you know the band of misfit toys because we're all very different from each other but we're all kind of like unicorns because we all know different things and we all come from different backgrounds and we've all like use the software differently and so if I don't know something I'll ask my colleagues and we'll find an answer right I mean often I tell I tell my clients sometimes the answer is you can't do that thing but it's still an answer true (laughs) that is very true (laughs) and then I get mad at the people who are like yeah just use dynamo I'm like okay guys (laughs) the answer to everything is not write your own program (laughs) like not everybody can write their own program but you know (laughs) when I talk about kind of BIM and 
preservation is that it's come a long way, mm-hmm. like all the digital technology. And I know that 10, 15 years ago, it was a lot more expensive. It was a lot more involved to like laser scan a building or something like that. But these days it's super cheap. I mean, one of my clients is an eight person interior firm mm-hmm. and they scan all of their buildings to make their existing drawings. And yeah. they have, and I, I helped them convert to Revit over the winter, but mm-hmm. they were doing it in CAD before. They own a laser scanner. The four people that do the design work there know how to use it. They take it out. They do their own scans. You know, they put it together in recap and they put it in. So it's totally an accessible technology. Yeah. And there's an example that we gave when we did our 2014 APT conference, which was a project that Quinn Evans did. Mm-hmm that the Ann Arbor office did that was this, uh, I forget the name of it, but it was this library that had this big pool in front that had these like stones in it that mm-hmm. were just like kind of randomly placed. I mean, the architect intentionally put them where they were, but they looked random and they had scanned it just because they had the laser scanner. And then when they were redoing the pool, they discovered that they actually had to take the whole thing apart because it was crumbling underneath and they had to move the stones mm-hmm. and they had already half demolished stuff before they had to move the stones and they're like, oh, wait, we have this laser scan that tells us exactly where they go. That's awesome. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so you never know like what benefit you're going to have. Like there's other things where you just can't get to it. Right. So mm-hmm. but a laser scanner can get to it. So you scan something from the inside, you scan something from the outside, you register them and you can figure out wall thicknesses. You can figure out like yeah. if something is bulging funny, like you can use them to do all sorts of cool things. So I think that for existing buildings, mm-hmm. that technology is really great out there. And, you know, you laser scan, you, there's all these different software that you can put the stuff into. And then once you get it into BIM, BIM, the software I use is Revit. Revit mm-hmm. is a BIM aiding software, right? BIM is a process. It's not a thing. And Revit is a database. And so mm-hmm. there's what we call HBIM, historic BIM. Uh, and I used it, actually, you mentioned earlier, the Ramsey Homes. Mm-hmm. So that was another project that the BAR tried to save. It was these four little four squares. Well, one was a triple and then two were four squares, literally two blocks from my house. Mm-hmm. And they were built in the 1940s as uh, worker housing for African-American World War II workers. And they were built with this uh, innovative technology of precast concrete panels. And so they were literally like the only buildings like that in all of Alexandria. And a lot of people thought they were, they, I mean, at the point now, yes, they were substandard housing in terms of what we expect as housing. Right. right. So something new needed to go there. We as the board decided that we should save one and repurpose mm-hmm. it for something else. And then we can build the big 50 unit building on the rest of the site. And we tried really hard to save it. The then mayor decided at the last minute that gr- grass was more important than a historic building. So we all thought that they were, can we had a bunch of city meetings and um, the public decided that we wanted to keep one building. That was the public's decision from the community meetings that we had about what to do with the site. And then they just decided to tear it down and put grass. And so we ended up, but part of the mitigation technique was to put on a symposium. It was supposed to be in person before the pandemic. And then we were going to do it digitally. And then it finally happened. And I did a presentation it was great, yes. by the way. I sat in on it. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad that you were there. Yeah, no, we did a great presentation on the history of the site. And then John Dempsick, who is an amazing historic structural engineer who works mm-hmm. for the State Department now. Um, I worked with him on some projects when he used to work at a at Silman. 
And he did this great presentation on the, the structural part of it and how it goes together. And then I showed how we could use Revit to analyze the different pieces and you could use it to catalog them and kind of make a little 3D Lego building of it. I mean, literally um, John and I, we got we would get on a call to talk about something for like 45 minutes and like two hours later, we would have been like deep in the Revit model, like <laughs> looking at it, trying to figure out how the thing went together. And we realized that, and this is something that I want all of your listeners to really understand is make sure that you document something like to the nth degree before it's gone, because once it's mm -hmm. gone, it's gone. Exactly. And there's no way that you're going to be able to figure out how that thing went together. Mm -hmm. Like we don't even know at this point, we have no idea how it was actually built. And so at a certain point we just had to stop trying to figure it out and just say, well, we have this documentation. John went and found the original patent and how it was mm -hmm. supposed to go together. And we use that information and the dimensions that we had and the dimensions from your drawings, <laughs> from right. your measure drawings that you had done for Habs yep. um, and put it together the best that we could. And I spent a lot of hours late into the night putting that thing together because I'm that much of a nerd. But it was fascinating. So, <laughs> so even after like having done or worked on the team that did the Habs drawings and then like sitting on the presentation and seeing all the Revit, I was like, this is so cool. Like yeah. I was totally nerding out and I loved it. Yeah, good. <laughs> Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a space I like to, I think it's fun to use technology to preserve things because yeah. we have it. It's a tool. We call it a toolbox, right? I mean, our, our presentation that we gave at APT was, you know, an architect's toolbox and it's mm -hmm. just another tool in that box. Just Absolutely. like anything else. I mean, Revit's a tool. You do with it what you will. I mean, you make it do what you want it to do. For right. The most part. I love it. <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> Sometimes it sometimes it works. <laughs> sometimes it does what it wants to do, but you know, it it it's usually pretty good and you know. Well that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Secrets, which is available on Amazon and just about everywhere music is sold. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience 
I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.